The uh, classic novel, Robinson Crusoe, uh, tells the story of an obstinate Englishman who goes against his father's wishes of uh, entering into the clergy and, uh, like many, called into the ministry, decides to pursue a life at sea, uh, echoing the story of Jonah, I guess. Uh, but and no sooner than his new life, his new career starts, he experiences a shipwreck. If you've read the famous novel from the 1700s, and in the shipwreck, uh, he makes his way off to some island. He has no idea where he is, um, and he's able to uh, save up some of the supplies from the shipwreck. He's on this beautiful island, not knowing where he is. It's somewhere off the coast of the New World, and he begins to build a life for himself. And he begins to build a boat, and he builds a house, and he just has this rhythm to his life. And as you read the story, you realize he is absolutely miserable. He is not enjoying it. It doesn't matter how beautiful the environment, how much rhythm and success he has found in building his new life. He is completely and totally miserable. And the reason is he was completely and totally alone. Words from the novel say this, singled out and separated, as it were, from all of the world set to be miserable. The island itself wasn't horrible. It's because he was alone on the island that it was horrible. The story speaks to a basic human need, a human need that was woven into the fabric of creation. As God created all of life, he wove this into the fabric of life. And that basic human need is connectedness. The idea of being in community, community, being with one another. God put that in us. From the very first pages of scripture you can read, as God creates with the word of his mouth, he says things like, it is pop quiz, when God created everything in creation, after each day he would say, it is good, it is good, until he gets to this one element of creation that's not good, it's that man is alone. Fast forward through the pages of scripture, you see this theme all over the place, but particularly in the New Testament, when you get to the 59 one another statements, bear one another's burdens, care for one another, serve one another, love one another as Christ Jesus has loved you. This description of this community that God had in mind when he created us, this togetherness, this connectedness, the church. And so you came in this morning and you were asked to fill out a name tag and it probably was like sandpaper to the soul of some of you. You asked, when you came into the auditorium, there's this, what we call a connect card on every one of the seats, and now you're thinking, now you want my information. What in the world is going on here? I wanted to come in here and not share my name and not give my information, and you are more than welcome to do that. That is totally okay. But every once in a while, one of the things we like to do is to lean in and remember that we were created to be in community with one another. We were not created to sit in a seat and stare at a stage and make church about what I get out of it so that I can go home and improve my own personal life. That's not what God had in mind. See, when God created this beautiful thing called the church, one of the things he had in mind is that we would be connected to one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. How can I carry the burdens of someone I don't know? And so the church, particularly in the West, has lost sight of this a little bit. All kinds of reasons. Not, Not time to sit and complain about that here and now, but One of the things that we need to recapture is the connectedness of the body of Christ. And so we ask you to fill out a name tag every once in a while. It doesn't happen a lot. If you're a guest here, don't worry. We don't do this every week. 
okay? It's just once in a while, like, hey, remind someone what your name is. You've sat next to it, like Ben has said. You sat next to people for a long time. You're like, I should remember your name, and I don't, right? Welcome to the ministry, okay? But also, when you fill out a Connect card, when you get to fill out this information that you're uh, letting us know, hey, I'm here. So whether New Hope has been your church home for 50 years, since day one, or this is brand new to you, Take some time to fill out the Connect card for us today. You can drop it in the offering boxes that are around the building, and we just want to get an inventory. Who's a part of the church family here at New Hope? To make sure that we're doing the best we can to meet needs and to stay connected to one another. So that's the reason why you had name tags and you had the Connect card. I want to pray for us, and we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Father, you are gracious and kind. What a gift the church is. Broken, flawed, messy, yeah, but beautiful. And there is something that comes with the experience of being known that was woven into the fabric of who we are. And for that, we thank you. So God, we ask that we would continue to be a church that carries one another's burdens, that loves one another, serves one another, spurs one another on to love and good deeds. It's only possible because of Jesus. And so may, above all else, may we stay connected to him. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Years ago, I was invited to a wedding of a very dear friend of mine, and uh, actually, his name is Heath, and he's actually preached here at New Hope. If you're new here, you wouldn't know that, but uh, a couple years ago, he came up and preached uh, here at the church, a very good friend of mine, and we were, I was invited to be in his wedding as a groomsman, and when we got to this wedding, um, the night before the wedding, all the groomsmen got together, and I had, up until this point in my life, never participated in this. Uh, which won't surprise some of you, but we went out into this giant open field with a bunch of guns, and we shot clay targets and other targets, and they were shooting guns, and um, this city boy was out of his element, uh, and I was, but it was fun. I had a blast. I learned a lot. They learned a lot about what it means to laugh at somebody uh, because I made a fool of myself over and over again. Well, as we got done with this part of the evening, we made our way back into this lodge where the wedding was, beautiful setting, and the groomsmen were all hanging out and having a good time, and uh, Heath looks over at me and says, hey, Rob, you have a tick on your arm. And again, they've got a good laugh at watching a city boy overreact to a tick being on his arm. (laughs) And he proceeded to reach over in the proper way, still don't understand it, Uh, he got the tick off of my arm. Stay with me. A few years later, here at New Hope doing ministry, I was with a group of guys, and we've done a couple different groups like this. We went and uh, hit some mountain biking trails. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, there's not a lot of good mountain biking trails in the Midwest. Uh, But there's a couple parks that have really decent trails with some good drops, and so we were going to go check one out. We were on the border of Illinois and Indiana at this state park spending the day, and we're riding these trails, and it's a lot of fun, and there's one hill in particular that had a really sharp uh, descent, and so you had to prepare yourself for this, and you're going to hit this going really hard. Some of the guys got off the bike and walked it. I'm like, I want to try it, and you had to get off the back. You have to get off your seat and kind of lower yourself and just take this hill going really fast. It's not safe, but fun, right? It's the love language of all the guys, okay? As I'm getting ready to take the hill, it's my turn. One of my friends says, hey, Rob, Rob, whoa, whoa, you got a flat tire. And somehow while we were resting, getting ready to take turns on the hill, my tire had lost all of the air. Had I tried to take that hill with a flat tire, it would not have ended well at all. It would have crashed, been hurt. It would have been pretty bad. 
Now, suppose, whether at Heath's wedding or in, on this mountain biking trail, when they pointed out to me I had a tick on my arm or I had a flat tire, I would have responded with, hey, I don't want to mess with that. Like, I don't care. My arm still works. Like, no big deal. Maybe this will fix itself magically halfway down the hill. Maybe the tire will get air again. Like, who knows? You need to stop bugging me about this because I don't really want to change this at all. I don't want to deal with this mess. Why would you even point this out to me? Or suppose I would have uh, turned to them and said, you know what? This is manageable. This is... But like, you shouldn't even be pointing out things that are wrong with me. Like, why would you tell me that I had a tick on my arm? Why would you tell me that I had a flat tire? Your bike's shaming me. Don't do that. Like, you're just pointing out your bike's better than mine. Like, that's ridiculous. We would never do that. Like, you wouldn't do that with your arm. You wouldn't do that with your bike. You wouldn't do that with your business. Or you wouldn't do that in your home. We only do that with our souls. We only do that with our character. Don't point out my flaws. Don't tell me what I have to work on. Don't tell me what you're seeing in me that's broken and that is going to end up hurting me. Don't do that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to have to deal with that. And here's the thing about this, though. Like, as much as we try to avoid it, as much as we don't want to deal with the deep soul issues, the things that go wrong in our lives because of whatever it is, this image we're portraying or this strength that we were raised to say that any kind of weakness is a weakness and you shouldn't deal with it, any kind of brokenness you should just avoid, whatever the reasoning is, people can see it a lot easier than we think they can. Like, they can notice the defect in my character They can notice the blind spot that I can't see of brokenness in my soul just as easily as Heath saw the tick or my other buddy saw the flat tire. The difference is this. The difference is I subtly or not so subtly let them know that to point that out to me would not go well for them. Like, sure, deal with the tick. Sure, deal with the flat tire. But don't you dare tell me that I've got a character flaw that needs to be addressed. You ever felt that tension? Like if you're just being really honest, you ever been there? You ever been to the place where you're just like, I know there's some things, I just don't want to deal with it. Like I don't want to deal with it. If I start to unsurface some of this ugliness that's taking place in my heart and in my soul, the consequences of that, the, the fall, I just, I don't want to deal with the fallout. I'm done. I can't do it. I can't deal with that. So in return, like we just kind of let our character flaws hang out in the background and therefore admitting that we have a flaw apologizing kind of becomes this thing that I use to ease relational tension like when things aren't going well I know that if I apologize I can control the narrative a little bit better I can ease the uncomfortable situation that I find myself in with my spouse or my kids or my friends or my coworkers. there's tension and apology usually eases that so I'm just going to do that and it becomes this manipulative tool to try to fix something on the surface without ever excavating the soul that's a dangerous place to be. That's a dangerous thing to deal with. And so what we do is we just, we don't systematically deal with these things. We don't address them. And what happens, we don't seek God to clarify it. We don't want to do this. And, and as a result, we live this like perfectly comfortable double life. I go to church. I say all the right things. I listen to K-Love. I, you know, I watch Christian movies. I watch my mouth. I don't have any issues with like sin problems like that I know of. Like I'm just trying really hard to behave. And you know what? I'm just not going to deal with it. And we live this double life. And we think to ourselves, does God actually really care? I mean, I'm doing all the Christian things. Like, my church attendance, flawless. Like, I know my Bible. Like, I have lived this life. You can't tell me, like, anything I don't already know. Like, I've lived this Christian life. Does God really care if I dig deep with these wounds, these issues in my heart? 
that other people see that I pretend like I don't see? Does he really care? I think the question is probably yes. You can see where we're going this morning. It's a really, really difficult thing. This gets us into the conversation around guilt and confession and grace and what kind of people God wants us to be and how he's shaping us as individuals, but also right here at New Hope. And so I want to tell you something with as much love and care as I possibly can. You've got a tick on your arm. You've got a flat tire. And maybe you've not experienced that, but as an apprentice of Jesus, remember this letter we're studying in 2 Corinthians was written to Christians. Evangelism is important. This is a discipleship letter. He's dealing with Christians. And so as a Christian, as an apprentice of Jesus, as a disciple, a follower of Christ, someone who is saying with my lips that I'm wanting to be shaped and formed into the likeness of Jesus, what do I do with my sin? What do I do when I feel guilt? What do I do when I need to dig some things up and deal with the ugliness of it, even if there are consequences that I have to live through as well? Welcome to New Hope. (laughs) Glad you're here this morning. We've got some work to do. And if you'll remember, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this group of Christians, and he cares deeply for them. And for the first part of this book that we've been studying, the Apostle Paul has been spending quite a bit of time defending his authority as an apostle. So his ability to actually speak truth into the lives of these Christians, he's having to defend himself over and over again. Why? Because they did what anybody does when a character flaw is brought up. Well, who are you to tell me anyway? Do you even have the authority to tell me to do this? Are are you even an apostle? Like, are you even the one that should be telling us to live this way? I don't know. Before we deal with what you're saying we have problems with, let's deal with the fact that we don't even think you're an apostle. And so he's had to defend that. And in doing so, he's had to continually press in on these character flaws that these Christians were struggling with. And that's what he does. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 7, down in verse 8, where the Apostle Paul begins to talk about A little bit of what's going on in his heart as he's had to make these tough decisions, loving and caring for these people. Verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it at one point. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul gives us an indication, and he does so in other places, that this was not the only letter he wrote. And neither was 1 Corinthians. You're like, I know. That's why it's called 2 Corinthians. (laughs) There were four letters that we pick up on that Paul wrote to this church. We have two of them. One of those letters that he references in chapter 2, verse 4, he refers to a letter of tears, meaning he wept over what he had to write to them. It was really difficult for them. And the wording that he uses here in verse 8 is fascinating to me. It's really got some gold when it comes to how do you have hard conversations with people And how do you receive it? But how do you really have that conversation? And this is important for Christians. So let me point out two things. First is this type of communication that he had to have with the church stressed him out. He says it stressed me out. Like it caused him some grief. I did regret it for a little while. I regretted writing that letter for a little while. Why? Well, it stressed him out because he didn't know how it was going to be received. He's like, I have to say these things. Like, I don't think what I'm saying is wrong. He's spent some time laboring over that part. But to send correspondence like this, really hard things where you have to point out really difficult things in someone else's life, Paul's saying, that really stressed me out. That was so hard for me. Because I know that it was going to do one of two things. You were either going to be pushed further away from your faith or you were going to lean in. But I knew I had to say these things. But man, I didn't want to. 
And the lesson that we learn from that is this, like the right person to enter into difficult conversations is the one who agonizes over having to do it. Like if you're eager to be the person invited into that room, you're probably not the one that should be having that. Paul knew that you can't disciple people and you can't minister to people. You can't care about people if you're just steamrolling their emotions. You can't just run them over. And so he knew that. So he, he had to be very careful with this letter, but he was really worried that if they didn't receive it well, they were going to be pushed further away from God and not lean in and be closer to him. And so here's the thing. If we have to have that conversation, when was the last time you went through the process of grieving, having to have the conversation, knowing that what you have to say to somebody is extremely important, but not wanting to be the one that has to do it? Your heart's in the right place when that's you. God will take that and he will use it. And that's what he's doing. That's what Paul's doing. I agonized over this. I regretted sending this letter to you for a little while. I did because I just didn't know how it was going to go. I don't regret it now. Like I knew what I had to say needed to be said, but man, it weighed on me. The second thing is this. Paul put a lot of thought into what he had to say while he was writing it. Like he sought counsel. He prayed. He let the spirit lead his wording. He didn't just say, well, this has to be said. I'm going to say it. I don't want to say it, but I'm just going to say it. He actually agonized over having to say it and then spent the time deciding what needed to be said and putting it in the right words in a way that it could be received. Let me give you an example of this. Um, I, I, we, we had dinner with somebody this past week, my wife and I, and as we're sitting there, one of the things that came up was, hey, what are you learning in marriage 15 years in? And so I'm like, that's a really good question because the, the most recent thing that I've learned in marriage is this, that just because I feel sorry for something doesn't mean that that's the right moment to say it, right? I think oftentimes when I'm sorry, an apology becomes selfish to me even if I haven't considered the best time for my wife Sarah to receive it. Because if the, if the sorrow I'm feeling is truly about her benefit, I'm so sorry for this, then it should be determined to be communicated to her at the right time so she can receive it. Otherwise, it's just about me feeling better about what I did. See, this is an important thing. This is what Paul's doing. It's not so much that I just have to say these things. It's what's the best way to say them so that you'll receive them in the right way? Like, what's the best way for me to communicate this truth to you? Like, have you ever been on the receiving end of this when it goes really bad? Like, have you been on the receiving end of some verbal discipline when somebody didn't seem to care about your emotions and definitely didn't think through what they were saying? Anybody? Like, yeah, that's the worst. You're like, you don't even, like, I don't even think you care about anything, let alone me. Like, you don't, do you, do you even know who I am? Like, what are you doing? Why would you say that to me? Why would you say it that way? You would push me down the hill, watch me crash with that flat tire before then telling me what I did wrong. Like, hey, you didn't do it right. You should have put air in the tire. We saw that up there. You didn't see that? Oh. Like, when that happens, it's worse. But have you ever been on the receiving end of this when it's done, like, really well? When someone loves you enough to point out some things that are going on in your life that really need to be addressed and fixed, and somehow you can see it in their face that they don't want to be the one having this conversation. They don't want to be the one saying this, but they just know that they have to say it. Not only that, they put a lot of thought into how to say it in such a way that you can receive it and it can bring about change. I had conversations like that in my life. I've had one in particular, and I've told you about this, so forgive me, but I had one in particular that actually changed my life. Because someone loved me enough, and they saw something in me. They saw a flat tire, and they knew that if I took off down the hill that is my life and tried to ride it on a flat tire, I was going to crash and burn, and the people around me were going to get hurt. And so they agonized over it. 
and they labored over what to say and they worded it perfectly and they said it in such a way that it was received well and it changed my life. As a matter of fact, it's not an understatement for me to tell you that this particular conversation I had with somebody is the cause of great gratitude in my life to this day. There are times when I'm driving in on a Sunday morning really early before the sun comes up and I think to myself, I wouldn't get to be the pastor of this church if it wasn't at least in part for that conversation. There are times when I pull into my house after work and I go in and I see my kids and I look at my wife and I think, I could have blown this if it wasn't for this conversation. I was a student minister at the time in Orlando, Florida at a church plant. And I was young and I was arrogant and I was cocky. And I was also lazy. I would sleep in. I would come in late. I would rely on natural giftedness to produce fruit in ministry, which is just super dangerous. I would say all the right things and do the right things, but I would only be there for a little while. And I, I, just, I, was, look, I was looking for the path of the least amount of work to do enough to keep a job. It's no way to live. So I come in one day, and the preacher of the church, who's a dear friend, says, hey, come into my office and close the door behind you. So I come in, and I close the door, and I sit down, and he proceeds to tell me with almost tears in his eyes. He got choked up during the conversation. And he proceeded to tell me the areas of my life that needed to improve. And then he said, this is so hard for me. But if things don't get better, I'm going to have to call your fiance, my now wife's dad, and say, I don't think you should let your little girl marry such an irresponsible man. I got up early the next day. <laughs> I was in early. That changed everything. Because he loved me enough to say the right thing at the right time, even though he didn't want to say it and it was going to be hard. And this is the Apostle Paul right here in, in, in 2 Corinthians 7. This is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, church, you've got a tick on your arm. You've got a flat tire. And if you try to take that hill with that flat tire, this is not going to go well. You've got to address what's going on. And if you don't, things aren't going to go well. And they did. Look at how he responds in verse 9. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, for Paul, the win in this situation was not that they felt sorrowful. It's not that they were sorry for something. That wasn't the win for him. The pleasure of being happy didn't come because they felt bad about what they did. This is another lesson for us to learn. You see, for Paul, the win was what their sorrow led them to. It wasn't the sorrow in and of itself. And for many of us, as we're with people and we're caring for people, and we're doing, many of us, we struggle with this because we, we, we want people to feel sorry, but we're not concerned with what happens next. And for Paul, he said, no, the win for me is that your sorrow led you to repentance. This is what he cared so much about. He wasn't in it to exhaust them. This is why Paul could write later on, and he could write in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, when he, he's talking about dads, and he says, a good dad doesn't exhaust his children with his discipline. The point is not just to hurt them and to discipline them. It is to lead them to a place of change. And this is what he's doing here. He's saying, look, my, the point wasn't that you felt bad about what you did, though that's a good thing because feeling bad about what you did led you to this place of deep repentance and sorrow. And he says, when you just feel worldly sorrow, that's not the same as godly sorrow. Not all sorrow is godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow that they're addressing here, it always starts with a man and his own needs. It's selfish. It's self-centered. 
It has no standard, right? If you're the source of your own truth, if you're just like, hey, I don't have a higher moral standard to compare my behavior to or my life to. So when I feel sorry for something, it's just about me and how I feel. And if I feel sorry, I say sorry. And if I don't, I still say sorry to get what I want. That's different. That's worldly sorrow. David Wells says it this way. He says, without the holiness of God, sin is just failure. But it's not failure before God. It's failure without any serious moral meaning at all. Unless there is a higher standard to take your life and compare it to, then you're left to your own definition of truth. And you will be in a vicious cycle of selfishness and self-centeredness. But when you take your life, your behavior, your poor choices, and you line them up against the holiness of God, this perfection, this perfect love, peace, and justice of God, and you take your life and you say, uh-oh, my life does not compare to the holiness of God. Not only that, my life is trying to impede on that holiness. It's trying to bring hurt to him. Why? Because he's a just and loving God. And if, if I'm someone who's in sin, I can't even be around him. And so the holiness of God becomes this place where now we feel deep sorrow. And if you don't get to that place, you've not experienced godly sorrow, just worldly sorrow. You might be thinking, yeah, Rob, but I'm a Christian, and the Bible clearly says there's now no condemnation. Like, so what, like, what are you trying to say? I mean, Romans 8, here's what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you're like, hey, there's no condemnation for me. Like, what are you talking about? Deep, godly sorrow that I have to experience. Here's the thing. There is a difference between the no condemnation for your sin and the deep conviction of your sin. Big difference. While you are no longer convicted to an eternity apart from God because of what Jesus did for you, you are still called to feel deeply sorrow for the struggle you still have with sin in your life. And for too many Christians, they become Christians. They say, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't have to deal with my stuff. And there's this wall to the heart and the soul. And they don't want to dig up things and deal with them because they feel like they don't have to. But there is a difference between, there's a difference between the no condemnation for your sin and the deep conviction of your sin in your life. See, godly sorrow always starts with godly character. It always starts with his holiness. I love the way Tim Keller describes this, this need for us as we come to this place where we see the holiness of God and I see my own sin and I have to repent. I have to, man, I can't live up to this. I need your grace in this moment. Tim Keller beautifully describes it this way. He says, repentance is the way that we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Let me read that a second time. I love this. Here's what he says. Repentance is the way that we make progress in the Christian life. I'm constantly evaluating my life and coming to the place where I can't fix what's broken. I can't fix what's broken. He says, indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. This is such a beautiful... This is Paul in Romans 7. What a wretched man that I am. I can't overcome this sin struggle. I just keep messing up. I keep making mistakes. But thanks be to God for the grace that is found in Jesus. That he has overcome it for me. I just need to come back to him over and over again. Look at how Paul continues to describe when you have deep godly sorrow in your heart and you wrestle with your sin. Look how he describes the way you live. He says this, verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnest, what eagerness, 
earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong or on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, in the presence of God, that you could see yourselves and how devoted to us you are. And by this, we are encouraged. So the point of us bringing about your flaws was that you would see for yourselves what God has done for you in Christ over and over again. Be reminded of how good he's been to you. For many of us, this is lost on us. He says, worldly sorrow is going to lead you to this place of just wanting more. It leads you to death. You've got no energy. It depletes you. You're just constantly burned out. What happens is if we're just trying to do this on our own, white knuckle this thing, you know what happens? Is you go down the path and, and you burn out and you watch Christian after Christian after Christian who have decided to fix their sin problem on their own over and over and over again. And they burn out and they say, I don't want to be a part of the church. The church let me down. And all these excuses about, I don't want to do this anymore. Why? Because you've been trying to live a holy life in your own power. But he says, godly sorrow is tapping into a different kind of power that produces life, leaves no regrets because you're not empowered by your own strength. Here's this beautiful John Orberg quote. He says this. He says, as the Apostle Paul, he, here, he makes this great distinction. The right kind of sorrow over a bad decision creates energy rather than despair. So it energizes you. It's like, yes, because what God did, I can change things. It helps us to learn from past mistakes and grow in wisdom. Worldly sorrow is depleting. In worldly sorrow, we look only at our bad choices as though the world rather than God is our only hope. We just rely on our own strength. See, here's what I think is going on at the church in Corinth. They've tapped into this power. The early church had this beautiful power. You read it in the New Testament. They had the power to heal, the power to forgive, the power to break down these barriers that were dividing people groups. They had the power to love people that were hard to love. An incredible amount of power. But here's the thing about power, even in general. It's dangerous. If you don't understand how power works, power can hurt. Same church in Orlando that I was doing uh, youth ministry at, we were a church plant. And so our offices were in this storefront. And you had one office space and a line of storefront offices. And so we went in to renovate this storefront. And again, this, if you've heard part of my story, you know I didn't, I didn't have these lessons. Okay, So we go in and we're going to be painting. And one of the guys says, hey, go in that office there and paint around the outlet. And so I'm like, okay. So I need to go in and paint around the outlet. I got it. That's not hard. Even for me, that's not hard. Okay, I can do this. So I grab a screwdriver to remove the case of the outlet. When I got to the outlet, I don't know why it didn't click. Don't judge me. I don't know why it didn't click that the outlet cover was already off, but whatever. I took the screwdriver and I started to go to work on the pretend outlet cover, I guess. And all of a sudden, and it wasn't just our office that lost power. It was the whole storefront. And it was awesome because... What did everybody do? It's probably Rob. Let's go check on him. <laughs> and they came looking for me, and they found me. And I had got zapped, and I had put the power out. And it was like, this is like, whoa, this isn't good. Look, if you don't understand how power works, power hurts. It just does. And the early church is experiencing power. They got plugged in. They got plugged into a power that they hadn't experienced since the Garden of Eden. 
But you got to understand that power works. How does spiritual power in your life work? How does the Holy Spirit work in your life? Well, here's the thing. Spiritual power works. The beginning of how it works is when people get honest about their flaws and their sin and their need for God. It is at the end of ourselves that God's strength kicks in and the power of God begins to work. But you can't tap into that power until you come to the end of yourself. And you realize, I can't, I don't have the power to fix what's gone wrong in my life on my own. I need to tap into a different kind of power. And that starts with you admitting that you're broken and that you messed up. And you have wounds deep in your heart that are affecting the people you love around you. You've got a flat tire. And if you're not careful, this whole thing's going to crash. So it's time to stop and put some air in the tire. Make some changes. Do the things that are necessary. So how are we going to do that? Two questions I'm going to leave you with. First is this. Have you, and, and you can only be as honest as you can with this question. You can read it and just be like, yeah, Rob gave us a question at church. That's great. But if you do some real soul work, have you really allowed yourself to feel deep, godly sorrow for your sin? Understanding what it's done to your life and your soul and your relationship with God and the people around you? How about, let me add something to this question. Have you allowed people in your life to point out your blind spots? the spots that you can't see, the sin struggles that you have, and knowing that it's hard enough for them to tell you, let alone for you to receive it. Because here's the thing. You're either going to have the humility to receive or you're going to be humbled because you didn't. You're going to have the humility to say, I better address this bike tire. Or you're going to be humbled when you crash halfway down the hill and you realize I should have listened. I should have addressed some of the things that were coming out in my life and in my heart. Look, this isn't easy for anybody, but there's a promise attached to this in Scripture. Look at what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we will confess our sins, if we'll just get honest about our heart, get honest about what's going on in our life with God, then he is faithful, meaning he can be trusted with the depth of your pain and hurt. You can trust him. He is faithful. He is just, meaning he will settle all of the wrong that's taken place in your life, whether it's a result of what you've done or what's been done to you. He is just. And he will take care of what took place. He will forgive us of our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Charles Spurgeon has a great line. He says this, God loves to forgive even more than you love the sin. How beautiful is that? God loves forgiving even more than you love to sin. Here's the second question. Are you living from the place of grace? Are you living out of the grace of God in your life? So many Christians are not. They don't walk in grace. They walk in shame. They are their worst critics. They beat themselves up. They're scared to go to God because they think he's going to be mad at them. I had the privilege. I traveled out west a couple weeks ago. That was awesome. You awake? I'm awake. I traveled out west a couple weeks ago and sat under some really good teaching from somebody. And one of the guys was describing his relationship with his children. And he said, my goal in raising my sons was this, that when they get older in life and they make a mistake, their first thought is, I better call my dad. He can help. He said, what would break my heart is if they get older and they mess up and they said, oh, I hope my dad doesn't find out. See the difference? Your heavenly father wants you, when you mess up, and you royally mess it all up, and you're digging deep, and it's painful, he wants you to know, I better call my dad. He can help. But too many Christians say, I mean, I hope God doesn't find out. I better hide this. I better... You see, God is a good and 
loving Heavenly Father. Another Spurgeon quote. I love this. He says this. He said, if God has not cut you off from mercy, there's no room in your life for despair. You have access to the throne room of the creator. Look, it is a painful thing to deliver a hard message. And it is sometimes even more painful to receive that hard message. But you know what's worse? Crashing and burning because you didn't put air in the tire. The pain that comes from not dealing with the heart wound, the soul wound that has taken place because of your own sin in your life. But the promise of scripture is this. If we will allow ourselves to get to the place of godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and we will walk in the grace of God, he will do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine in your life. The question is, will you lean in or will you run away? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. And as cliche as this sounds, just thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to have access to the heart of our Heavenly Father, but you've given it so freely to us. And God, while we're waiting for your return, while we long for the return of Jesus, we live in this broken, difficult, frustrating, oftentimes tragic and heartbreaking life. Well, there's difficulty at every turn. And the biggest struggle of them all is our own brokenness, our own sin. And so would you continue to lead us through the loving words of faithful friends and through the loving care of of people that we surrounded ourselves with from the conviction, the deep conviction we get when we read your word and examine our hearts. Would you lead us to the place of repentance so that we can revel in the gift of your grace? You have been kind to us. And this morning, we want to offer our thanks in the name of Jesus and all of God's people collectively saved.